Welcome back to Pertaining to People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. Hey. Hey. Uh, it has been a long time since we have recorded an episode, so sorry, everybody. It's been like six months, but that's fine. Um, we got a little busy with the life school. got in the way. Yeah, school life pandemic, you know. Um, so we're going to call this season two, season two of our podcast coming to you now. Jill, it and was very deliberate and planned. What are you talking about? We just took a quick hiatus. Now we're back. It's cool. <laughs> we had to rejuvenate and get some great new ideas for you guys. And we're going to be coming at you with so many good episodes. Get ready. Buckle up. Yeah. And we just had to chill out a little bit before our arctic episodes Ooh. um oh bad jokes <laughs> by jill woo, woo, woo. yes <laughs> i'm glad we're back, baby back. <laughs> we're back um bad jokes by jill so, <laughs> did i tell you guys that i did ask my musician friend if he could make me yeah a, a little jingle for bad jokes by jill and uh it never happened it never happened it would have been oh, great i could get my um, sister to do it heck yeah why not let's do it also since we are back i will quickly say also like my name is jill i use they them pronouns now so that's a new thing so putting that to, out to the listeners and you both still use she her just for, for anybody do. new Indeed. to confirm yes, yes. correct awesome. great just good to check in sometimes um but anyway so yeah so we're back we're doing today we're doing an episode about the arctic and arctic archaeology because kelsey is currently up north up in the yukon i am yeah coming to you live from the yukon on the beautiful shores of kluwani lake and yeah super excited about this episode we're going to talk a bit about some arctic archaeology history and how it's defined and then a bit about climate change i feel like it's very timely right now because i'm uh, sitting on the edge of kiwani lake and i learned when i got up here about the Kuskowalsh glacier and how it has been receding and it receded back so far that its outwash channel in the river from the glacial melt is now draining into the pacific ocean so it's no longer draining into Kiwani Lake. And since 2016, when the glacier finally stopped draining into the lake, the lake has now receded two meters, I think it is. And uh, yeah, you can just see this endless beach line all around it. And this is a big lake, um, over 80 kilometers long, the largest freshwater lake in the entire Yukon. And it's uh, being pretty heavily impacted as it's drying up now as a direct result of climate change. So well, this has definitely been weighing on my mind recently as I'm up here. So I'm excited to talk today about the Arctic and its history and climate change and its future. See what we, uh, what we can learn and maybe what lessons from the past there are to help teach us how to navigate this new uncertain climate change future. Because there's, uh, there's quite a few examples of climactic change in the past and warming temperatures, obviously not to the scale and extent that we see today, but we could talk a little bit about how that helped define cultures yeah, and, and how, groups. Yeah, and how how Inuit yeah adapted to it in the past as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, real it's, quick. 
Yeah. I will tell a joke first. Oh, yeah. Jill's oh, bad oh, jokes. Wait, that wasn't <laughs> the chill <laughs> one? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it wasn't, actually. Um, that was just me on the cuff, you know, because I'm pretty funny. So it's fine. Uh, <laughs> no. My joke is, the other day, I told my friend that part of Canada is in the Arctic Circle. Really? He said, there's no way he was having none of it. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty terrible, honestly, but it was excellent. There you go. I like the Canada tie in there too. Exactly. And then, so now we can talk about what the Arctic means and what is part of the Arctic. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. I love it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Canada is part of the circumpolar Arctic. So Arctic being the top of the world, (laughs) north, and it's a lot of countries can lay claim to Arctic territory. So Canada has, of course, some of its landmass in the Arctic. Greenland is primarily in the Arctic. A lot of Russia and some Scandinavian countries like Norway, Finland have some areas that are above the Arctic Circle. So the Arctic can be defined by the Arctic Circle, which is a defined parallel that we sort of arbitrarily pick as you know everything above this is the arctic but i mean culturally and in practical terms uh it can be defined a few different ways and other ways is looking above the tree line so the tree line is sort of this imaginary but also not imaginary because you can see it lying around the arctic where trees no longer grow north of there the growing season's too short and it just can't be sustained so the vegetation and the fauna in the arctic is very distinct there's no trees it's all like willow and like just some mosses very like low-lying vegetation i remember being shocked when i went up to nunavut the first time and learning that a willow branch that was maybe only like an inch thick that it was potentially over 200 years old just because it took that long for willow to grow because their growing season is so short so another one of the pretty cool, unique characteristics of the Arctic is that it has really long days in the summer months because of the tilt of the Earth towards the Northern Hemisphere. So you get really long days. It's actually recording this June 20th, so right the summer solstice, longest day of the year. And uh, where I'm in Yukon here, it, um, we're not even that far north, but it does not get dark out. So we just kind of get little bit of dusk for a bit but no pretty much daylight 24 hours now and further north you go it is yeah full daylight for 24 hours sometimes the sun won't set for months at a time then the opposite of course happens in the winter where you have very long dark cold winter months with absolutely no sun (laughs) so it's I always find it just so fascinating how cultures and people are able to adapt to these really extreme conditions and yeah not only survive but thrive and create amazing culture and art and leave all these phenomenal objects behind and are still living up there and sharing all this wisdom and this like amazing feats of ingenuity and creativity and it is just some of the most phenomenal aspects of human endurance or examples of human endurance I think in the world and I think it's really cool. Some of the earliest evidence we have of human occupation in the high arctic we define as something called the arctic small tool tradition so some of the earliest we have like a paleoarctic tradition sort of like before pre-dorset dating to about 7200 years before the common era so it's almost like 9000 years before present and that was indicating that i stopped signatures from underneath cave indicate that there was a very influenced marine diet 
which is primarily what people in the Arctic consume. Okay, so for the Canadian Arctic history, we could talk a bit about that. So around 4,000 years ago, you had small groups migrating from the Bering Strait area. So that's sort of that area, what is now Alaska and Russia, where they kind of connect. And um, that migration ended up developing into three distinct groups, which we define now as Independence One in the High Arctic, and then pre-Dorset in the Low Arctic, and Sakak in Greenland. So those um, groups developed from that migration. And what sort of defines the Arctic small tool tradition is their small tools. So they particularly used microblades and prepared cores, um, which is basically just really, we've talked a bit about um, debitage and how flakes were constructed using certain rocks, this type of material. So these are just like really small, really thin, very sharp uh, microblades that they would then insert into bones, tarpoons, and basically the microblade would, yeah, add that cutting aspect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Words are hard right now. Um, yeah. So <laughs> in the, yeah, in the low Arctic, which is now considered Nunavut, some areas of Nunavik and Labrador, we find some drills and scrapers and projectile points. And then at about a thousand BC, so about 3,000 years ago, we start to see this transition from the pre-Dorset to what we define as Dorset culture. So some reasons for this might be that some colder climactic conditions arrived between about 2,200 years before present and continued until about a thousand years. 1,200. Yeah, continued to about 1,200 years. So That meant that as colder climactic conditions, the groups living in the Arctic had to adapt to hunting along the sea ice. So there wasn't a lot of like boats in the archaeological record. And that tells us that hunting probably took place along the sea ice. Then what we define as the Dorset, that's kind of like the term archaeologists use for it. But like when I worked in the Arctic, they would refer to them as the Tunit, the little people. Well, I'll just say, I'll kind of add on. So the late Dorset, some of the sort of defining characteristics, you see four different types of settlements um, for the late Dorset people. And so there's rectangular semi-subterranean houses. So they would have an entrance that would be subterranean under the ground leading into their dwelling so that really helped with you know keeping out the cold and then they also had warm season tents for the summer and then winter snow houses you'd see as well and then there's one of the pretty defining things about late dorsus late dorset are like aggregation long houses and so these are really really long settlements (laughs) houses and i think one of the largest ones that we found in the arctic it's 45 meters long and so these were places where people would come together and it would often be numerous families coming together and there's you know often hearths outside and it's often thought of to be ceremonial as well there's a ceremonial aspect to coming together this way and so just really really interesting and then 
you know, a couple other things, like you haven't seen any dogs, rills, bows and arrows at this time, which is kind of interesting. But then they had some really beautiful x-ray motifs in their art and and on their a lot of their hunting artifacts as well. And so x-ray, like literally the skeleton of a polar bear, for example, of, of animals, drawn out on you know ivory on all of these different things is absolutely gorgeous honestly so cool we should maybe post a photo of them because they're just amazing but anyway and then yeah so ice-based hunting is expected for the late dorset people and then uh, like main things that they were eating would be like ringed and bearded seals and then arctic fox arctic hare and then in some areas, uh, you know, caribou as well. But, you know, in certain areas, you're not really going to get that. And muskox as well. So anyway. Yeah. And the Dorset, yeah, in addition to all their art, and they had really intense ceremonial, like you were talking about ritualistic and religious practices, a lot of shamanism. And what's I think is pretty neat. So yeah, Dorset is a very like unique culture, very distinct group. And then you actually have a second migration into the Arctic of a different group of people coming from the Alaska area about a thousand years ago. So about 1000 AD. And this is we define as the Thule migration. And it's, they took the coastal eastern migration route. um, So kind of coming along the top of Alaska and then migrating into the high Arctic. And what happened with that migration, and the, the Thule had a, or not completely different, but a different way of life where they primarily subsisted a lot on the hunting of whales. They lived in uh, whalebone houses at times for the summer or in the winter and sod houses, as well as um, supplementing that with igloos uh, while they're hunting out on the sea ice or like traveling across the lands. And it was really interesting because we see right around this time period, so about 1100 to 1400 AD, where the Dorset culture, what we see and define archaeologically, disappears. So we don't actually know why this happens. And Inuit, like modern day Inuit oral history actually talks about this separate group of people. The They refer to them as the Tunit. And they say that they were little people. They always had these big hoods. So on their parkas, uh, the Thule then now Inuit, would have hooded parkas, like actually um, a full hood, versus the Tunit or Dorset, they just had big collars to kind of help block the wind. And that was a pretty uh, distinctive feature of their clothing too. So they knew that they were this different group of people. But yeah, we don't know why the Dorset or the Tunit disappeared. So were they, was their culture kind of overtaken by Tuli culture, by this like different group? And then they just adapted to this different way of living? Were they outcompeted? Were they, you know, fighting for the same resources and a different group came in? Did they intermingle and, you know, they kind of are living on now in the modern day populations? Was it because of an increasingly warm climate? We really don't know. So that's one of, I think, like the really interesting aspects of this Arctic prehistory is this, you know, group that was so defined in the Arctic and had all of these like amazing characteristics that just really... And had lived there for so long too. Changes. Yeah, and then we have see this rapid transition. So this new culture, the Thule, arrive in the Canadian Arctic um, from their Alaskan homeland. And yeah, what's really interesting is they completely shift the focus. So they're looking a lot more on the hunting of large baleen whales for the resources they can provide. Because I always think it's so cool. Like, um, I, always, I ask people the question sometimes, okay, you live in the Arctic, like, and you need to construct a home. And like, what, what do you construct your home with? Like, there's no trees 
Um, and I think it's absolutely brilliant that they use they use the resources resources available. So they were able to ingeniously hunt bowhead whales, the largest literally living mammal on the planet, and they're able to use seal floats. So basically you'd hunt a seal and then you'd blow it up with air and then using sinew you could then harpoon a bunch of these seal floats to a whale and eventually it would get too tired to be able to dive and that's how you would actually hunt the whale. Then using some of the whale ribs, because they're these giant bones, they would actually use that as the structural support for their homes, for their tents, for their subterranean houses. Like it's really really phenomenal such a feat of engineering and then yeah so even like keeping warm in the arctic there's no trees to burn you can't just have a campfire like we would here so what people would do i think is just they had genius they would construct kuliks so actually carving out uh in soapstone a shape sort of a bowl to hold seal fat in and then using the wick of the arctic cotton they could actually create a wick and then on that could then burn it provide heat it was phenomenal um yeah just genius ways of adapting and surviving in some of the most difficult climates and yeah you can see the harpoon technology that they developed it's it is so phenomenal yeah and the kulix are super cool too because yeah well first of all like using blubber to burn is just not something i mean i'm also a vegetarian so it's not a little it's not exactly how i think but <laughs> you know that and and keeping that flame going that was like a full-time job because you know you needed that to live to to you know stay warm to cook all sorts of things and you know in some areas they would also some areas did have more wood and they could use more wood and there are certain periods of time where we see more use of wood and then there's uh, a lot of driftwood was used as well and that is kind of interesting in the terms of our of terms of archaeology because the way that we do radiocarbon dating, which if you don't understand, you can go back and listen to our episode where we talked about that. But when you try to do radiocarbon dating on charcoal from driftwood, it can really mess you up and can give you some really wonky dates. Same with trying to date sea, sea animal, sea mammal bone, because being in the ocean will will affect the levels of carbon and, and really can screw up your dating. Um, so you have to be careful what you are dating from an archaeological site in the Arctic to get proper dates. Speaking of driftwood, isn't there also evidence that they may have been trading driftwood farther inland from the coast? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I think there's a, yeah evidence of a lot of resources being traded, especially further north. Driftwood was a very hot commodity, and we might have a special guest star who will talk to us about Arctic shipwrecks and how when whalers first came to the Arctic, if they had, you know, wrecked their ship up there, then obviously the local Inuit would pillage and take all that wood because it was so valuable and then repurpose it in the construction of their homes and various things. So I think that's a really neat reuse of that wood. And a lot of these Arctic interactions, um, so we do have some evidence potentially that the Dorset and Thule, so that then became the modern day Inuit, actually did um, potentially interact. Some of that evidence is the similarities in their harpoon head styles, as well as their the same similar snow house construction and the soapstone vessels, the coolings that we were talking about. Those continue in similarities through the cultural transition. So there is a lot of evidence of that interaction. One other interaction that I think is pretty cool is that around the same time as the Thule migration happened is the same time we see the Norse or Viking immigration into the Americas and their exploration 
of Greenland and then into Canada of what they called Vinland. And it's interesting to kind of flip it on its head because we always think about the Vikings, of course, like conquering and coming across. But it's more like, I like to think of it more like did the did the Thule kind of conquer the Vikings? Because they really did kind of outcompete them in a way and they kind of kicked them out. They did not have them. Oh, the Vikings failed in Greenland. <laughs> like... They, they it was miserably. A... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we can see there is evidence of Viking occupation uh, for sure confirmed, a settlement, a Viking settlement in Canada. It's in uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, and it is called Lance Down Meadows. And that is, yeah, a phenomenal example of Viking settlement. But it's they the only reason they were able to even have a settlement was because of what they learned from observing the local Thule population at the time and how and the Dorset or Tunit and how they were surviving and living on the land. So they would were already weaving animal hair into make like textiles. They were, you know, surviving in this like amazing remote climate. And a lot of what we attribute to the Vikings potentially would have been things that they learned from the local populations already inhabiting in that space so it's a really interesting time period and we can even find like chess pieces carved out of walrus ivory found in canada and some really interesting examples of yeah this medieval period exploration and the interactions with canada's canadian arctic population at this time period and yeah. there's a lot of similarities too in the yeah, the Viking having the same semi-subterranean houses, like part underground. And then we get into European interactions into the Arctic. So with the whaling, a lot of European and British whalers were then coming into the Canadian Arctic. And the Franklin Expedition is a very famed Canadian wreck of battles, <laughs> I guess, of British origins, but set sail in 1845 to find that famed Northwest Passage through a way of getting trade from England to India and Asian continent, but through Canada's Arctic and led to a lot of failed expeditions because Europeans are not always the brightest in realizing that local people might know what they're doing to survive up there. I recently watched The Terror, which is like a, it was like a dramatized TV show version of what may have happened on the Franklin expedition. And like a lot of it, they had to fill in the blanks. But it really went to show how stupid <laughs> some of the people that were coming up here from Europe had been, but also how much they had underestimated the or like the indigenous Inuit because that like generational knowledge of how to survive trumps any European technology, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and absolutely. It, yeah, and honestly, they kind of got what they deserved. <laughs> yeah. The, they underestimated it. They didn't think about so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and ultimately really failed that. And I think there's like there's a degree of respect too for the the environment and yeah. the like how, like how harsh it actually is up there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, more respect for the. And it's just amazing what people are able to do when they're adapted to living in like, these living in these areas, yeah. yeah and surviving for and, yeah. thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. Because you also think it is very difficult to just be, like, humans are very, uh, we're really good at, like, improvising and figuring out how to survive, but you really do rely on the knowledge of people that came before you in order to be able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And just the respect they had, and still have, for the animals and the landscape and realizing that you, you need to work together to survive in that landscape. You rely on the animals. They are your source of sustenance, like... 
all of the vitamins and minerals that you need to survive that you can't supplement with a plant-based diet because there isn't like nothing up there. Marine mammals provide excellent sources of vitamin C and D and you know everything that you need to be able to survive and thrive and live healthily. Like yeah, it's a really phenomenal place and that people like the ingenious adaptations to be able to hunt and yeah, it's so amazing. And the modern day Inuit, in keeping with traditions and cultures alive, the language, like Anuktitut, spoken, there's so many different dialects, though, across the Arctic, and so complex, like, it's amazing. Yeah, I took Greenlandic lessons this past semester, and so it was only four lessons, it was like one a week for four weeks, and man, oh man, it's hard. It is not easy. And I mean, first of all, I'm not very good at the pronunciation, but then second of all, you kind of like the way that words are, are put are made and like the cases and everything, it's, uh, it's not, not easy for, for little old me. Um, like, I'm very impressed and I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm very likely going to Greenland end of July, August, and I'm, I'm excited to practice. But I am also so embarrassed, like preemptively so embarrassed about how bad I will be. <laughs> Did you do your lessons with Dr. Hayashi? No. No, no, no. Oh. It was actually um, a gal in Greenland who, who teaches, so we did it over Zoom. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Because really uh, I took cultural anth with him, and he told us that because uh, he spoke Japanese, and then he learned English to do his dissertation but then to learn greenlandic he had to learn dutch from english because danish. all the textbook danish yes all the yeah all the textbooks to learn greenlandic were in danish and yeah. that's like the amount of commitment <laughs> to do that yeah he is an incredibly talented person especially in terms of languages but yes mm -hmm. um well and that's the thing because greenland was colonized by denmark and mm. Unfortunately, it still kind of is under them. It's quite a weird. And then when we talk about Arctic archaeology specifically, not just the history of what happened in the Arctic, um, but when we get to that in this episode, we can talk about some of the weirdness around like the archaeology and who does it and whatever. But yeah, because they, there's still some really strong ties to Denmark and it's they're technically independent Greenland now, but there's still, you know, so much that is controlled by Denmark and it's honestly pretty mm. unfortunate it's not not super ideal however but that does mean that there's like many many ties including also with the language where yeah if you if you know Dan Danish it's much easier to learn Greenlandic because a lot of those yeah any resources that you might use are Danish Greenlandic rather than you know Greenlandic English for example mm -hmm. interesting the archaeology and how like well, the history of colonization, of course, and uh, in the Arctic is very strong, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, and there's a, quite a dark history in Canada, too, of forced resettlement of indigenous Inuit populations. And then Greenland is one of the only countries where the majority population is still the indigenous, like, Inuit people, right? Where is, sorry? Greenland. Like, the majority population in Greenland is still the indigenous in like anyway, groups. yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe just to quickly, quickly go back <laughs> to actually wrap up uh, about the the history. Mm -hmm. Was there any more that you wanted to say, Kelsey? There, you know, you started talking about whaling and colonization times. 
terrible times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of that history. Yeah, colonization. The, when I worked up in Nunavut um, 2017 and went back in 2018 for the summers um, to do archaeology, and I found it really interesting. Um, yeah, 2017, I worked with a group. We were uh, Inuit Heritage Trust, and we were helping excavate a whalebone house. And one of the elders, Inuit elders that I worked with, Inuki, he actually told us that his grandmother was born in that house, in the in that whalebone house, and that she actually remembers the first Kalmut, or like ghost person, white person, um, arriving in uh, a Kaluit at the time, well, where they were living in Kamarit, and what is now a Kaluit, and it was Amundsen, so the explorer who actually the oh wow sound or the bay that it's a Kaluit now. Kaluit is now named after. Um, so she can recall actually like meeting him and seeing some of the first. So like this history isn't that far back. Like these are all oral accounts of you know people's grandparents that are still alive today that they can recall these interactions happening. And then with the Second World War, you had. Like, you know, so there was a lot of interactions with the Europeans um, early in those whalers, those early Arctic explore, explorers, I'm using in quotes. Um, those, yeah, interactions with Europeans brought in a lot of trade goods. And then, yeah, beginning in the First and Second World War, you had a lot more of the um, intensified colonization of the Arctic and forced relocation and even the, um, yeah, forced wearing of ID tags for Inuit people and... Um, that really, yeah, sort of changed and helped shape the Arctic today. But mm. there's a lot of, you know, exploration with resources and various things and, and that, archaeology, like, I think. for settlement as well. Mm. Y- yeah, in, yeah. In, in that period, one of the, the very clear events that is often talked about is... Well, so in 1953 and in 1955, um, as part of Canada's attempt to establish sovereignty in the north, um, the RCMP for the 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 Department of Resources and Development um, moved in total in those two years about 92 Inuit um, from Anukiyuak, formerly called Port Harrison, which is in northern Quebec, and they used them to move them, sorry, to Mitsimitalik, uh, which is Pond Inlet in what is now Nunavut, to settle two locations on the high Arctic islands. And so it's it was really, really terrible what they did. They offered them well, and they promised that they would be allowed to come back um within two years if they wanted to and they promised them improved living conditions and all sorts of things and it absolutely was not it was way worse and as much as we do see similarities in in Inuit culture and the way that they live it is very incredibly different living in Quebec and living in Nunavut. And so it was a huge adjustment, not to mention the fact that they were taken away from their family and their friends and their whole community and moved 2,000 kilometers away. And And then forced to survive in a landscape that's completely unfamiliar. Like you were talking about that intergenerational knowledge being transferred for that 
your homeland for that area that you inhabit, that you hunt. Obviously, you gain like immense knowledge on how to survive in that area. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily just transferable. You can't just pick it up, be dropped somewhere new, and then have all that same knowledge at that land. That's that's not how it works. So like people then really suffered. Yeah, there was starvation. There was a lot of negative influences from this because that's that's not where people are from. Like people just think the Arctic is just one big blanketed culture and group and location but it's it's not it's very diverse it's very distinct like it can't just be lumped together like yeah yeah a lot of dark history and the restriction of those lifeways and actually forcing people to no longer be migratory as well to force them to stay in one place all year when they used to be able to travel between areas depending on food availability and like climactic changes throughout the year yeah, that, that must have also been so difficult. Yeah. Well, and actually, so John Amagualik, Amagualik, who is thought to be often like the founder of Nunavut, he was one of the people, like students at the time, he, you know, he grew up having to act as a translator between his parents and colonists. And so he learned a lot about... He was an he was another one of those who was a high Arctic exile in quotes who was moved up there, but forced to be a translator for his parents and colonists, and then learned a lot about wh- you know what was being promised by the Canadian government and what really wasn't being delivered, and ultimately led to him you know getting together a group of students and working to to build Nunavut and to have that be you know indigenous and governed by governed yeah yeah. exactly so i mean ultimately that is maybe something good that came out of this but that is definitely not to say that this was a good thing it was really terrible and it took way 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 too long for the government to even admit the wrong that they did and offer any sort of apology so and a lot of these communities are still under supported and they have groceries and other necessities are extremely expensive. A lot of them don't have access to quality health care and emergency services. Um, some don't have mm-hmm. access to clean water. So, and like nothing is being done about that really by the government. Food needs to be supplemented with, yeah, traditional hunting and on the land but there's so many restrictions and yeah the government really tries to impose and force upon and there's also a lot of stigma around traditional hunting practices in the north because of like this i guess neoliberal idea that people shouldn't be like that the hunting of animals is like torture i guess or bad immoral or immoral yeah how cruel yeah when it's what these people rely on to survive and it's like they do it respectfully it's true and it's traditional practice yeah and it's out of respect yeah for the animal and it's survival and it's it's such an important way of life and understanding and that cultural revitalization needs to continue but yeah like a lot of groups are really steadfast trying to stop that so which is not good because this I'll just say that, like, by definition, indigenous hunting practices are sustainable. Like, mm-hmm. it, they are built in to, to not hunt, you know, females during birthing season and making sure that populations are, are steady and so on. So it is, yeah, 
I don't have anything like against vegans. My dad's a vegan now, apparently. But if you're being mm-hmm. a preachy vegan and you're going after indigenous people for their hunting practices, take a step back and don't. So anyway, um, <laughs> it's my just don't. It's my word for the day. But yeah, one other thing is also the borders. Borders can are really detrimental to life as well. So the border between Greenland and Ellesmere, that is a really important area. It's called Pikila Sorsuak. It's actually the area that uh, my supervisor focuses on. And it's a polynia. So polynias are really amazing resources in the Arctic because they stay, um, they don't have landfast sea ice like all year round. It's, it is a, it's a place to hunt. And so it is very likely that Inuit and Inuit ancestors and they're often called Paleo-Inuit people, the people before Thule. That's what was suggested by the ICC, the Inuit Circumpolar Council, is to call them Paleo-Inuit because there is also some, some ancestry there. There's been genetics done and there is genetic links but anyway so that the people living there for thousands of years it's very likely that based on the conditions and the time of year and you know what was available they would change like they would move from one side of that polynia to the other to find whatever resources were available available and you know and it's it's plentiful too like there's you know tons of hunting was done there and especially mm-hmm. again at different times seal or whale but dove keys or little auk birds are also a really important resource and they have nesting grounds all around that area so um yeah being able to access and move freely across across that imposed border is is pretty important as well so anyway do we want to talk about arctic archaeology yeah i think that's a good segue yeah (laughs) yeah there's definitely some particular challenges in doing field work in the Arctic, obviously the remote locations, um, getting up there, but and the fact that the ground is frozen a lot of the time, permafrost, and you have a lot of snow-covered months, so you have a pretty short growing season and a pretty short um, digging season if you want to do archaeology in the Arctic. But um, I've, the times I've worked in the Arctic, it's just a phenomenal experience because it's um, been so community-oriented and uh, really driven by Inuit curiosities and more like practices of cultural revitalization. So part of the excavation we did of the Thule Whalebone House was to learn about the traditional construction techniques so that um, some of the elders and knowledge keepers could actually like teach youth and have a whole cultural camp about building this Whalebone House and reconstructing one um, using traditional methods and gaining a better understanding of how these practices um, kept their ancestors alive for thousands of years. So it's a really phenomenal opportunity and <laughs> I found it really interesting. I worked in um, Belize and I think Jill you've dug in Belize mm-hmm. you've dug in Belize too, right? Yeah. Um, and in Belize, you know, we have to dig really deep. You know, you're digging way down like you know, two meters into the ground and you're still only about six hundred years into the past just because in lots of tropical climates you have huge amounts of deposition. So like a lot of sediment basically getting built up rapidly over time. As we talked about in the Arctic, there's a very short growing season, um, so that means there's also a very short like decomposition season. <laughs> so the soil basically doesn't develop at the same rate. So you have very, very thin soil sitting on top of bedrock in most of the Arctic. So when you're actually digging, you really don't have to dig that deep. <laughs> so you can actually uncover about 6,000 years of that history and only about a centimeter or two of soil. So it's, it's really phenomenal. I think... Um, 
yeah, excavating in 2018, maybe the deepest I dug was 10 centimeters. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, <laughs> you, you're not digging um, meters below the ground to help try to uncover deeper history. It's a lot of it's still on the surface. So you can see some of those really amazing examples of those semi-subterranean dwellings, um, tent ring structures, Kulix, like all still on the surface. <laughs> I even remember um, flipping a rock one time. It was a tent ring, so they had used the rocks around the edge to help pulled their tent down just so it didn't blow up and the cold air didn't come in. And then when they pulled the tent away, it, the rocks kind of fall to the side and there they laid for a long time. And then I came along many hundreds of years later and flipped one over and perfectly preserved right under the rock was an articulated um, set of vertebrae. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And we kind of hypothesized what it was. And we think maybe it was a sled dog's tail. So like potentially a sled dog puppy would have like maybe got frostbite. So then to like save him, they would have maybe cut off his tail to make sure that he, the frostbite didn't like cause damage and spread further into his. And then it was left there, got covered by a rock and then left perfectly preserved for me to find many Many, many, many years later. So, so like, interesting. Yeah, it's and really... the preservation in the Arctic is incredible because of that low decomposition season, exactly. which is affected by climate change. We can talk about <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, talking yes. about the, the negative of like a short field mm-hmm. season, but the uh, positive, especially compared to some place like Belize, um, anywhere in the south, mm-hmm. it's the amount of preservation is huge. You can find skin, you can find hair, you can find string, you can find braided sinew, you can find all of these amazing, amazing things that you don't find anywhere else. And it just gives you mm-hmm. this really interesting like snapshot of of the past which is just um, amazing to me do you have you guys found that i don't know if you i don't think you guys have organized or fun like had to get funding for projects anywhere else but is it more expensive to go to the arctic and excavate there (laughs) yeah i think yeah yes (laughs) very expensive yes yes yeah travel travel itself (laughs) travel yeah and like coordinating just because there's not the infrastructure and the resources so even finding like yeah a helicopter company like you you know it's there's not as many options there's just not as much um yeah ways to get up there and it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's costly finding places to stay just because again there's not a lot you're really you have to pay what is there because there's no like no other you can't negotiate right there's no no, nowhere else so yeah it is costly and and for matt's project they actually have a partnership with is it the danish navy i think where to actually get to some of the islands and and such to do that and you know you do also have to be careful about like polar bears for example like you have to be (laughs) yep yeah, I, like, was, I was so scared when we got dropped off on the island and left a shotgun in our tents and just like, oh, good luck. And I was like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah I, since then, I've, we've always worked with a polar bear monitor. But mm-hmm. I remember my, yeah, Tim in the Arctic telling me, uh, you got to dig like you're a seal. So, you know, you, you <laughs> can dig for so long, but you can't get too distracted about what you're finding. because you have to look up like a seal every so often and check your whereabouts to make sure that the polar bear hasn't snuck up on you. And even... Using the outhouse, um, like I had to memorize which icebergs were in the harbor before I would like walk on my own to the outhouse because 
polar bears will stalk you and they will like blend ah. into the ice and they'll make themselves look like they're just ice and they'll sit and wait until you're alone and then catch you. So <laughs> it's really, really scary. Yeah. yeah. I'm very grateful to not have an encounter, but even like Nanook, like that word for polar bear, it wasn't spoken. No one talked about them because it was so, so everyone was so superstitious that mm. speaking about them in any context would bring them to you mm-hmm. and that was always just bad especially in pre-contact before there's guns or anything like your self-defense is very limited so you uh you just you just hoped for to never encounter them and one of the ways was just never talking about them never saying the name never basically acknowledging them um, yeah is one way to just hope for the best because yeah you are not the apex predator up there for sure no. and it's uh quite intimidating yeah but i do think oh just getting back to like the preservation and like the organic preservation in the arctic just because um part of my dissertation here in the yukon is looking at the objects that are melting out of uh, ice patches and again we have that like because they're cryogenically frozen we have awesome preservation with wood and sinew and ochre you know and feathers all being preserved on these like arrows and yeah it's really cool in the arctic because you have such yeah nominal preservation that you can see this glimpse into this life basically that we really don't see down south so we don't archaeologically you see a lot of the stones um and rocks things that don't degrade and deteriorate but in the arctic you have that possibility of recovering that organic material and i think it's really neat because especially looking at like gender roles and how we um, place value in an understanding of patriarchy and how women would have what activities women did in the past and their contributions to livelihood and survival a lot of that unfortunately doesn't preserve like you know working with the textiles or the manufacture of any of a lot of what women used women worked with uh, does biodegrade so in the arctic we can actually see a lot of these materials and get a better understanding of that more equal gender balance and an understanding of all the different ways that everyone contributed to survival and all the different technologies and tools and like pieces that were used um animal parts and yeah like the skin and there's so much that we just didn't know about that we didn't understand archaeologically that was um we really only had oral history for knowledge on and it's really cool to be able to see that um yeah in the arctic absolutely that's kind of a half-formed thought but i feel like the gender papers are always fascinating out of the arctic like the gendered use of space and how yeah all that's been yeah definitely well and just i mean just on that that immediately makes me think of well so there's like just so many amazing artifacts um i it's so funny to me because sometimes like i'll talk to people and and say like oh yeah like i focus on arctic archaeology and they're like oh there's there's archaeology up there it's like yeah and it's amazing like it is like i mean not to mention the culture of the actual people actually living there now um but (laughs) like just talking about like women's roles for example like there's so the knives that they would use they're called women's knives they're called ulus and they're like so cool and just used for for, you know skinning and and preparing meat and everything and then you know you also find especially from like late dorset and i mean other times as well but you'll find needles and needle cases so they literally had like cases to hold their needles in and I just, it blows my mind. It is amazing to me. Like the, just the intricacy of the artifacts and the cultural items that you see. It's so, so amazing. But, you know, 
that's me just getting excited. But I mean, <laughs> then I think the appropriate but sad little connection to make here with t- talking about preservation is the fact that that is now being affected climate disaster that we are currently experiencing is most more than anywhere it affects the arctic and that affects not only the people and the environment but that does also affect archaeology and a lot of the sites are around the coastline and they're greatly affected and so you know the permafrost layer is is melting which is causing landslides it's causing slumping the rising sea levels. Huge coastal erosions. Absolutely. And as well, like the majority of precipitation now in the Arctic is no longer snow. It is now rain, which again is leading, is further contributing to all of those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hugely detrimental and it is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Arctic is definitely some of the first to be impacted and experiencing climate change and it's very concerning yeah the coastal erosion and because of all the carbon stored in permafrost as it is melting we have so much is being released back into the atmosphere and it's just going to continue this cycle yeah and even with the greenlandic ice sheet melting and like um the north atlantic current is or the gulf stream north atlantic current and the gulf stream basically provide all of the that temperate climate for a lot of Europe and it's at the weakest it's been in over a thousand years right now so because of the influx of fresh water from the melting glaciers in Greenland we have desalinization of the Atlantic Ocean and that is causing this Gulf Stream to then completely shut down which means if that happens Europe will be thrown into a big old well what would have been an ice age but yeah, it's really messed with the climate a lot. The implications are huge, not just for the modern populations living in the area, but also for the entirety of the world. Like the impacts of the Arctic impact everywhere, and they are going to have substantial, lasting, rippling effects due to these immense, immense changes. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Scary something stuff. I hadn't even thought of was um, in the Hollinson et al. article from 2018. They talked about how the you you mentioned the uh, tree line, Kelsey, because of the warming climate, the tree line is getting farther north, which both is affecting the natural ecosystems there, but also the root systems that are growing into Arctic stratigraphy there is is, is being um, disrupted. So it, it becomes difficult for people who are excavating to excavate like in these more forested areas, but also when you're excavating, the timeline isn't clear anymore because of the disruption from the from the roots. Mm-hmm. And there's so many plant, yeah, so many plant and animal species that rely on very distinct te- like temperatures and temperate climates and conditions that now like are because of all this immense change and they can't survive in the same locations anymore and they're just going to go extinct. If, like you can't necessarily have entire species be able to just repopulate, especially like vegetation. Like it doesn't just naturally transport itself and um, normally doesn't have to face this climatic change this rapidly. It would have time to like adapt but unfortunately that's just not the case now so yeah it's going to be very interesting to see what all the impacts um, are but we're continuing to study it and we can potentially use some of the 
um, indications of how human populations adapted in the north to climactic changes in the past mm -hmm. to these um, warming and cooling events to learn a bit about how we can potentially mitigate some of these impacts as uh, they are happening. Absolutely. Yeah, because there have been some huge climactic events in the past and and Inuit and their ancestors and, you know, Paleo-Inuit adapted to these times. And often that meant moving to a different area. There's, I mean, there's, there's so many, as we know in archaeology and anthropology, there are so, so many theories about how exactly this went down. But you know, it is certainly we can look to, to to what happened in the past and how people adapted for for the current the current disaster that we are experiencing. But with that being said, I will quickly plug and I will say, do what you can for the environment. I know that it's not the easiest for everybody. We all have different life events, and you know, the different socioeconomic factors can really affect what you can do. And more importantly, more than anything. Lobby your governments because they're the ones that can really make a difference and change, you know, how big corporations are dealing with the environment and and acting in the pollution that they're giving out. But because at the end of the day, an individual can only do so much. But I think we can still make a change and hopefully we'll still have an Arctic to do archaeology in. <laughs> And also for people yeah. to live in. That's not to say that archaeology is more important than the people actually living there. That's not what I'm trying to say. But, you know. Jill, you also mentioned the, like, issues between... We've talked about this before. Of the, like, different countries that... My baby cousin's crying. <laughs> um, <laughs> Having so many countries in the Circumpolar Arctic... You mean? Yeah, Lulu's having to deal with a crying cousin in the background, so she's just waiting for that to pass a little bit. Were you going to talk about the like the borders or the different people doing Arctic the, archaeology? The, I guess the kind of bureaucracy between like all the yeah. countries that have stakes in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, that is yeah that is important to this as well. And oh yeah, so I quickly brought that up, but then didn't really expand on it. So the history of Arctic archaeology. In, yeah, in the Arctic is is quite interesting and it's quite fraught, and um, there's sort of an interesting, I don't know, culture community around it where for a long time, archaeology was done quite differently in like Russia and then Canada and then Denmark, for example, and they were all kind of doing, or even Alaska, so the states too, like they're all kind of doing their own archaeology but separately but not really collaborating and so for a really long time there was this huge division and so there was without that collaboration can't really understand the full picture and you know we've talked about interdisciplinary work before and i mean this is kind of the same 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 deal interdisciplinary or you know working with different people who've done different research for yeah for quite a long time danish archaeology was they had huge stakes in Greenland, obviously, uh, being colonizers, but they, the archaeology was publicly funded. And so there was a ton of Danish archaeologists doing archaeology in Greenland, uh, Greenland more so than the Canadian Arctic, but so in Greenland and, but then they just wouldn't publish. 
They wouldn't publish their work. And so it was kept a secret and they, or they would have like special students that they sort of favorited and they would share that information with them, but then they wouldn't necessarily like share it with everybody else. And so there's a pretty famous archeologist, uh, Bjarne Melgaard, who did a ton of excavation and had all of these ideas and, and theories about the people living in the Arctic. But at the end of his life, he just stopped publishing and he just sort of clammed up and he didn't tell anybody anything. And so it's, there's a lot of that sort of stuff where it wasn't collaborative. And then same with Russia. Like, I've honestly no idea what's going on in Russia for in terms of Arctic archaeology. Mm-hmm. You don't hear anything. Um, but it is getting better now where there is collaboration. And now there's Greenlandic archaeologists as well. So that I love, of course, because, you know, <laughs> it's their history, it's their ancestry that they're actually looking into. And so, you know, having them lead this is... And same with Canadian Arctic archaeologists, like having them lead the story of what they're actually looking at is really important. And there is now a lot more collaboration happening between the different people with, of course, yeah, different stakes in terms of archaeology itself. But then, yes, the countries as well have have different stakes in terms of, you know, Canadian, that Canadian sovereignty that didn't really go away, them trying to establish that and and keep that for themselves um, to to benefit from. And same with Denmark, not really letting go of Greenland. So that that certainly plays a part in this as well and definitely affects the story of how it's, you know, going forward. But it is a really incredible place. It is <laughs> a really incredible, you know, history and story. And there's actually a, a really interesting set of videos from the Canadian Film Board, I believe, about, uh, what are they called? Yeah, the Arctic is so cool. So unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. The Northern Lights, Aurora Borealis, and the stories. And yeah. <laughs> Even, oh my gosh, Inuit culture and all of its complexities and shamanism and the amount of oral history that has been preserved there too yeah. is oh, amazing phenomenal. it is beautiful yeah ah uh, yes so this is what i was gonna say so the national film board of canada they produced a series of little videos about a series on the net inuit and and it is slightly problematic i will say this mm-hmm. because this was part of the <laughs> These Inuit didn't actually live in this area. They were taken from somewhere else and then put in this area to to show off, you know, Inuit traditional ways of hunting and, and making a kayak and all sorts of things. So with that being said, uh, knowing that this isn't perfect and, and also issues of they didn't want to show any like modern technology in mm. these videos. like And so it, it kind of depicts them as still only using like traditional technology but but that's not the case because people adapt and you know when you you have access to other things you'll use them i think what had happened with those was they filmed it in the 60s but these were people who had already been like settled in like wood houses and they Mm -hmm. just wanted to record the traditional knowledge that they had from when they weren't living yeah in like settlements so it's like weirdly staged but still gives us a lot of information exactly yeah so yeah yeah. so with all that being said (laughs) the sort of issues with it they are really interesting and do give a a 
glimpse into some traditional ways of Inuit. So, and even in the modern day, there's that awesome revitalization. I don't know if you guys watch on TikTok, but um, the folks singing. Yeah. Oh, I love TikTok. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Shina Nova. Yeah. Yeah, and you can learn so much about Inuit culture and the traditions of throat singing from her TikToks, and I would definitely recommend checking them out because they're just phenomenal. And I think definitely. she lives in northern. Uh, Quebec, right? Quebec. Yeah, in Nunavik, I think. Yeah. In, uh, I don't know. Yes. It's really yeah. interesting. I think. But yeah, so Sheena Nova on Instagram does beautiful throat singing with her mom. It's absolutely amazing. So definitely check that out. We'll link that and we'll link the National Film Board of Canada. And and of course, all of our references mm-hmm. for the <laughs> this episode. But yeah, I think that's... Is there anything else you wanted to add, anybody? I think we've covered... I mean, not everything, obviously, because it's... <laughs> no. Yeah. But we covered exactly. what we wanted yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. As always, like, this is, again, only a mm-hmm. snapshot. It's just, a, a, like, a general overview. We could do, like, ten episodes on <laughs> Arctic archaeology. So but this is just, just the beginning. So if there is anything more you want us to talk about more specifically, mm-hmm. you can always reach out to us on all... Comment. Exactly. On all the platforms. Through email or Instagram or Twitter, which I haven't checked in months. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, reach out to us and, and then we'd love to talk about those things a little bit more and yeah we don't we haven't decided what our next episode will be but it'll be a season two episode two <laughs> something something maybe on shipwrecks maybe maybe shipwrecks, maybe on <laughs> shipwrecks. Yeah. just continue the arctic but anyway yes thank you for joining us again back again after mm-hmm. six months we hope that everybody is happy and healthy and safe and we will be talking to you soon. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs>